This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, and two organizations, Radical Mentoring and Samson Society, hosted a track called Men's Discipleship. And that's where we recorded the audio for today's episode. Make sure to go online and download a free ebook from Nate Larkin, who founded the Samson Society. It's called Beyond Accountability. It's about practical ways to disciple someone through addiction. It's available for free at discipleship.org slash accountability. That's discipleship.org slash accountability. As you listen, just a heads up, we weren't able to capture all the audio when people asked questions, so bear with us as you hear presenters respond to questions that may not necessarily be included in the audio. And now for the track session. All right. Well, welcome to this uh, fourth session in the track, second session for the Samson Society here at the Disciple Making Forum. We've titled the track rather cryptically, um, More Than a Pancake Breakfast. I suppose that title sounds a little bit cynical, and maybe there's a flavor of cynicism in it. It's sad to me that in the typical church in America today, the men's ministry, if there is one, consists mostly of something like a pancake breakfast. We're going to get the guys together, and it's going to, and the more guys, the better. And uh, maybe we'll have a speaker, and uh, we'll slap each other on the back, and we'll sing together, and we'll pray together, and then everybody goes home. I'm well aware, more aware now than certainly than I was 20 years ago, um, that to steal a phrase from Henry David Thoreau, most men are living lives of quiet desperation. Even our church guys. It's one reason why so many of our guys sit at the end of the pew and don't get that involved. Because they're fighting um, a secret battle of some kind. It might be against uh, depression or something related to work. It might be an addiction of some sort. I do know this that um, the favorite addiction, the primary addiction among church guys is a porn addiction for some very practical reasons. Uh, Unlike alcohol, uh, you won't smell porn on a guy's breath. And today, thanks to a very aggressive porn industry, porn is completely free. You don't have to spend any money on it. If you work a little bit, you can rationalize porn use and tell yourself that it's uh, a defense against adultery, uh, that it's harmless, that uh, you're not actually uh, stepping outside your marriage because you're not getting physically involved with anybody. Of course, like uh, any addiction, porn addiction is progressive. And I can tell you from personal experience that porn took me places I never intended to go. And while not every guy who uses porn winds up becoming physically unfaithful, I certainly did. When the opportunity arose, I crossed that line. Uh, But that's not something you want to bring up at a pancake breakfast. 
that conversation doesn't just happen spontaneously. And so what most guys do who are in that boat is they pray harder, uh, they try harder, uh, they hate themselves a little more, um, they make fresh resolutions, they do what they can to compensate, and they lose a little heart every year. It is astonishing to me how much creativity, energy, spirituality, um, and how much energy toward being a husband and a father is unleashed when a man can finally, with the help of some other people, face whatever that primary fight is. Whatever that fight is that he's been battling alone. Uh, My conviction, by the way, is that that is the enemy's primary Uh, strategy to keep every man uh, engaged in a game of one-on-one because that's his game. There's a story I sometimes tell, you know, when I was in high school, I was always a a little kid, just short. I mean, I, I reported for my junior year in high school, I was four foot 11 and weighed 75 pounds and nearsighted and not very athletic. Uh, But I loved basketball. Uh, I actually made the JV team as a junior just because the coach didn't have the heart to cut me. I rode the bench the entire season. Uh, Did play two minutes in the final game. The coach put me in, scored no points, uh, but as the clock ticked down, I had to find a way to get into the record book somehow, so I slugged a guy and got called for a foul. Uh, so I was the smallest guy in our class. The biggest guy in our class was a guy named Whitmore. Uh, Whitmore was about 6'2", went away to about 220, 230. We were Jeff. Now, Whitmore and I had the same class schedule, which meant we were in the same study hall. And uh, neither one of us really wanted to study in study hall. And uh, I, was a good f- I was a good forger. And um, Whitmore was a good thief. So Whitmore stole a pad of hall passes from the study hall monitor's desk. And I forged the coach's signature on a pass that would get us out of study hall and into the gym. Because I knew that at that period the coach was teaching health and the gym was empty. It was kind of scary the first time we tried to pull it off and it worked. And so we're down in the gym, we got a whole period. And uh, so, you know, I propose we start, you know, let's, let's, play, let's play some one-on-one. Of course, I mean, he just obliterated me, but it was fun. Well, the next day we... We tried it again, and it worked again. We went back down to the gym and played some more one-on-one, and of course he owed. And then it became a routine. We did it every day, all year. (laughs) So um, we played hundreds of games of one-on-one that year. And out of all those games, I won none. But Whitmore was smart. 
He could tell when I was losing heart, when I was about to just kind of give up on the thing. And so he'd back off. He'd give me a route to the hoop. He'd give me a shot. Um, sometimes I got really close. But at the end of the game, it was always Whitmore who had 21 points. I can remember during the, uh, the depths of my addiction, which progressed from porn addiction to, to, uh, to uh, full-blown sex addiction. And I was very active in church. Uh, but um, I, was, I was very well known and nobody knew me. And I had a well-developed religious persona and couldn't understand why I couldn't make the connection to God that I wanted. Uh, and while I, was, uh, while I was very gregarious and outgoing and inviting, I always, never allowed anybody to get too close because if they got close enough, they might discover the real me that was failing so badly and that I was trying desperately to fix. Um, I remember getting up every morning feeling like I was about to go play one-on-one with Whitmore. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd play. I might get close. But in the end, it was going to be Whitmore who had 21 points. That's a very dispiriting um, feeling. Um, And the pancake breakfast can make that feeling worse. Especially if you put on your best church self uh, to go hang with the other church guys. And you know in your heart of hearts that you're not telling the whole truth. And even if guys love you, and you know what? Guys loved me. I knew they didn't know me. So the love didn't mean anything. I was convinced that if they ever knew the real thing, I'd be ejected and rejected. Um, you know, Dr. Tom Mocha is here. He's back in the corner. He's the president of Samson House, the nonprofit that we started just a few months ago at the urging of Reggie Campbell, by the way. He's been such an encouragement and so instrumental in taking Samson Society to the next level. Um, Tom and I agreed when we came that we came as much to learn as to teach. Uh, We know that God is taking our group of guys someplace. He's got a place for us to go. And I've been praying for and listening for direction while I'm here. And I want to tell you, I've, I've gotten some. The lights have come on for me just in the last few hours. Uh, and, and, and what it is, is uh, I've recognized something I already knew. Something that we accidentally have done uh, to find success, but have never done deliberately. And I haven't noticed what's crucial in that piece of success. So let me tell you about the Samson Society. The last session, for those of you here, I told my story. Uh, but we started the Samson Society in, in 2004. 13 guys in the first meeting uh, in, uh, here in, Frank, in Franklin, Tennessee. Uh, modeled after 12-step meetings. That's where I had found freedom from my porn addiction. 
Um, although Samson is not a 12-step group, it carries kind of the spirit of 12-step recovery. And we work to create that same safe environment, a place where we could tell the truth. We said uh, Samson is going to have meetings, these one-hour meetings. We'll have a meeting after the meeting. We'll go to the pub together and hang. Uh, every guy needs a, a Silas. That was our word for what 12-step recovery will call a sponsor. A Silas is going to be uh, somebody he connects with between the meetings. Ideally, somebody he communicates with once a day. Somebody he's going to tell the truth to. Somebody who'll get to know his story. Somebody who can remind him who he is. And uh, shed some light on his life from a different angle. This guy isn't perfect. He's no genius. He's no expert. But he has the great gift of objectivity. Uh, his primary qualification is that he's not you. I'm fi- I find that even when I was at my craziest, I was able to give some pretty good advice to other people. Uh, I made the mistake of thinking that that qualified me to be my own advisor. The problem is there are whole areas of my life that I can't see because I'm inside it. On my own, I walk in circles, but with another man, I can walk in straight lines. Um, so we started with those 13 guys and we met for a year and by the end of the first year we had grown the group to seven. Uh, (laughs) We'd had uh, uh, quite a few visitors during the course of the year, some folks who'd kind of cycled in and cycled out. Realized at the end of that first year that um, the Silas thing wasn't really working. If anybody had a Silas, I was the Silas, with the exception of one pair of therapists who, because they weren't allowed to really talk to the rest of us about too much personal stuff, had paired up. So we decided to have a retreat. We'd never had a retreat. Uh, Friday night to Sunday noon. And uh, we decided to focus on the Silas thing. And we invited everybody who'd been through during that first year to come to the retreat. Well, 25 guys came. We had the, the two therapists who were operating as Silas's uh, talk about their experience. We uh, role-played Silas phone calls. Uh, we sent guys off for an hour with a notebook to chart their life And then we paired them up with a temporary Silas and sent them out for another hour, two hours, to share their lives with each other. Uh, We had meals together. Uh, We played poker on Friday night. And Saturday night, we sat around a campfire till about two in the morning. And by the end of that weekend, everybody had a Silas, everybody had been a Silas, everybody had told his story to somebody. And we came out of that weekend a team. It was amazing. And from there, things really took off. So a year later, uh, now we got 40 guys in the room, and uh, we're so excited about what we found. Guys are making, guys are getting free from stuff they've been fighting their entire lives. So we decide to write a book. We're going to share it. So I write the book. The other guys contribute their stories to the book. I pass it to them every chapter for review. Everybody agrees it's a good idea. 
to write the book. So, uh, actually, before I wrote the book, I wrote the book Proposal. And because uh, I learned that's what you do. Publishers don't want to see books. They don't read unsolicited manuscripts. They just want to see a proposal, something that will prove that the book might sell. So I'd written the proposal. The guys had approved the proposal. I'd given it to a few people that I knew at Starbucks, just kind of let it out to the wind to see, you know, magically whether it would get published. And I got a phone call one day from a pastor in California and somebody had given him a copy of the book proposal. And the book proposal did contain a couple chapters from the book. And he said, uh, hey, we're having a men's retreat out here. Uh, would you come out and be the speaker? I can pay you 1500 bucks." And I said, well, geez, I, I, don't, I don't know whether I can do that or not. I do know I can't come alone. One of my rules for this new way of life is I don't travel alone anymore. That got me in trouble. I'm not even sure that I should do it, that I'm ready. I'll talk to my, I'm still doing 12-step recovery as well as Samson at the time. I said, I'll talk to my, I'll talk to my sponsor. I'll talk to the, and, and, and see what he says. So I talked to my sponsor and, uh, because we'd been working on my primary problem. I thought my primary problem was my sex addiction. It turns out my primary problem was my pride. And he'd been working on, hum- we'd been working on humility for a long time. And uh, I love to get up in front, and it kind of feeds my ego. And I said, you know, is it healthy for me to go do this? Can I? He said, yeah, you know, I think you're ready. I think you can go do that. He said, but you know, you can't go alone. He said, uh, see if any of those Samson guys will go with you. So at the next meeting, uh, I said, I've been invited to speak in California. Does anybody want to go? 25 guys volunteered. <laughs> So we took 25 guys to California, um, used the $1,500 to pay for a lodging and meals. Everybody paid their own airfare or paid for somebody else's. We made it a quick trip, went out on Friday, came back on uh, Sunday. And we, uh, so on Saturday, during the day, we did this program that we called the Samson Minicamp. And we just modeled our meetings and our relationships and some guys talked and talked about their experience. Well, in the, uh, in the Samson Minicamp, we outnumbered the participants. Um, there were 25 of us and I think there were 15 of them. We did it anyway. And it was great. Um, We'd planned a big program for that night, and we'd made up posters. And I've, you know, my guys are Nashville guys. A lot of them are musicians. They could put on a show. So we had this thing called Escape from Isolation Island. And uh, the guys at the minicamp got on the phone. And uh, by that night, um, the room was full. And uh, we modeled a meeting in front. We had songs. We, I talked a little bit. It was great. And then um, the next morning, everybody flew home except for me and one guy, uh, a touring musician who had some dates up and down California for the, for the next week. So we traveled together, and I spoke, and he sang, and, and we ended that week back in the town where we'd started. Got back, and I want to tell you, that town was still talking about what had happened the Saturday before.
But uh, they weren't talking about me. They were talking about these 25 guys who came to town together like some kind of championship football team, who freaking loved each other, trusted each other, and came to give something away. That is the power of the group. And my big takeaway already from this time here at this conference is that Jesus' model of disciple-making was one of group mentorship. He called groups. We actually did, uh, he created a group, and he sent that group out to create groups. Um, the book eventually came out and um, the purpose of the group was to inspire men to start a group, a meeting of the Samson Society or something like it and uh, we put up a website where they could register their groups where they could register themselves uh, and 450 groups started and 10,000 guys signed up on the website. And, uh, and we didn't even have phone numbers for these groups. We never made contact with any of them. I really did not. The Samson Society is, is set up to be a non-hierarchical system. It's uh, intended to replicate virally on a Linux model is the way we described it. So uh, it's open source, take it, share it. And so there's absolutely zero administrative support. Um, So people would ask me as the years went by, how many Samson guys are there? And I would say, I really, I don't know. I had 10,000 guys on a website. But I'd go visit groups and find that only a few of the guys in the groups were on the website. 450 groups, but then I'd bump into groups that weren't on the website. It did dawn on me as the years passed that most of those groups, though, did not succeed. Um, They were there for a while and then they went away. And, um, but there are some groups that have just, a a healthy number, maybe a hundred, that have really taken root and flourished. It was uh, just a few months ago. Kevin, when was it that I came out to Georgia to speak at the Radical Mentoring last Conference? April. April. Yeah. Okay. So the world turned for us in April last year. Um, I got an invitation to come speak at the Radical Mentoring Conference in North Georgia. And I uh, came and spoke. And afterwards, Reggie Campbell, who I didn't know from Adam, got in my grill. And uh, he's a challenging guy. And uh, he wanted to know whether I had a nonprofit that was supporting this work. And I said, no. And he said, why not? And I said, because um, I hate nonprofits. And I'm, I hate asking people for money. And I'm in a tent making ministry. And I think that really is superior. Uh, so I can uh, do the work without ever having to, uh, to, to ask for money. And uh, he said, so, it's all about you. 
and uh, he pushed hard. He suggested, uh, he didn't order me, but he, he made a suggestion that I needed to rethink this thing for the sake of the ministry. At one point he said, you're making tents while the church is burning down. Uh, that and the recognition that a lot of these guys who we'd inspired to action um, had responded, but because they didn't get help or support from us, they'd floundered. And so uh, I became willing for the first time to entertain the idea of actually starting a nonprofit. And as soon as I said yes, the wheels started to move uh, at an unbelievable pace. Hard to believe how much has happened since April. We not only have formed the nonprofit, but we've gotten the final letter of tax exempt approval from the IRS. Um, Tom Mocha has come on as president of uh, Samson House. We started uh, because the Samson Society by charter can never be organized as a corporation because it uh, accepts no, charges no dues or fees, owes no property, pays no salaries, incurs no debts. Um, Samson Society couldn't actually become a nonprofit, so we started Samson House to support it. Tom, Dr. Tom Mocha came on as president to my great relief. What? Tremendous man. Uh, and we got dreaming and talking about where this thing should go. Yesterday, we rolled out um, a new website uh, uh, that I think we're still woefully unprepared to support. But uh, it's a, a $75,000 investment. We've done it in cooperation with a fantastic group of web developers, a man named... Uh, uh, Kevin Sandall, I think I saw Kevin walk in. There he is in the back. Does business as ministry, uh, and he's got uh, he's got a group of, of programmers, very skilled professionals in India. And Kevin moved recently with his family from India to Malaysia, but Kevin, along with a business partner in Chicago, uh, runs this business, and. Uh, we are set to launch with the new website uh, not only to support our existing groups, uh, but we're going we're to launch virtual meetings. Uh, I have a great burden, by the way, for pastors. I can't tell you how many pastors I hear from who are trapped in an addiction that if their behavior were to be discovered, would result in their immediate termination. They're not there because they want to be there. They're just there. Uh, they got trapped and they don't know a way out. They uh, are listening day after day in their study to men in their church who are battling the same kind of issues and they're helping them as best they can all the while knowing that they themselves uh, are in that same awful place. They want to see Samson groups started in their own church, but they know that they themselves can't go to the group and be completely honest, or it's the end of the road for them and for their family. And while they might take the bullet for themselves, they're not going to subject their family to that. By the way, in confidential surveys, more than 50% of pastors admit to habitual porn use. They're basically the same as everybody else in church. Why did we think they were different? Why did we think they were different? 
And why did we offer them this devil's bargain? Pay them to sit atop a pedestal. Penalize them if they ever get down. We see the virtual meetings as uh, one way to help meet that need. Uh, using Zoom technology, which, by the way, is freakingly fantastic. A few, uh, this is orders of magnitude better than, uh, in my experience, than Skype or GoToMeeting or the web conferencing uh, software that's been used in the past. Uh, I was astonished. And this is all. I had never sat in a Zoom meeting until, you know, I think May of this year when somebody I met at your conference, Kevin, uh, set me up on Zoom and then came to my house and showed me how to do it. Um, uh, with this new technology, we could have a meeting. I think we're going to try and cap it at around 50 guys. We'll run it just like a one-hour Samson meeting, and we'll do introductions with the 50 guys and uh, you know, kind of read the rules for sharing. And you know, We have a confession of faith. We do open in prayer. We're a group of Christian guys. Uh, but this is a safe place where a guy can bring his real self and say the real truth. And the beautiful thing about this Zoom thing is that when it comes time for sharing, with a push of a button, the guy who's hosting that meeting can blow that room out into breakout rooms. And now every man's in a virtual room with four or five other guys. And he's got 35 or 40 minutes to tell the truth in a confidential atmosphere. And then supplementing that, we've got a new app. We have an app. That's uh, available in the Apple Store and the Play Store uh, that you can download. You can't activate until you've been in a meeting and uh, you know you're deemed to be you know just another idiot like us and safe. And so then we activate the app. And with the app, you can interact with anybody you've been in a meeting with. You can ask a guy through the app to be your Silas, and you can start to make those daily phone calls and walk together. Um, and it is the together, I think, that is the crucial element. There's one thing I know for certain, and I tried to make it clear in the first presentation, there's no solo way out of addiction. Once you're trapped, you can't think your way, work your way, act your way, will your way out of it. You might be able to white-knuckle for weeks, months, maybe even years of abstinence, But you won't know freedom. You'll never find serenity. You'll never get the power, be able to unleash the power that God has placed within you creatively by battling this thing alone. Um, The enemy's job is to keep you convinced that you are close to winning that game of one-on-one or to get you to give up the game entirely. Because that's his game. He's only lost once. Jesus, after his baptism, went into the desert for an epic game of one-on-one. And it wasn't even close. The rest of us, not so much. We can't show him a move he hasn't seen a billion times. We're outclassed. But Christianity is a team sport, not an individual event. Jesus came to build the church, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. That's why 
we are instructed when we get together to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we may be healed. Um, I'll tell you, <laughs> when this came home to me, I mean, I still wasn't awake. I was in, uh, I was in the fog of addiction, but I was a dad. And uh, my kid was in the fifth grade, and he came home and told me that he wanted to go out for the basketball team. And he said, uh, Dad, you played high, sc- high school basketball, didn't you? And I said, yes, son, I did. He said, uh, well, can you teach me how to play? I said, I certainly can. So on Saturday morning, we went to a city park not far from our house uh, where there was a basketball court, and, uh, and I started running drills and fundamentals. We did it for a while, and then, and then I challenged him to a game of one-on-one and just obliterated him. A good father, you know, probably would have let him win. Uh, but anyway, so but he loved it. And the next Saturday he wanted to do it again. And so we did it again. And that became the routine. I love basketball. I love my kids. So every Saturday we went to Branson. We played one-on-one, and I was Whitmore every week. Well, one weekend uh, he had a friend stay over, a sleepover on Friday night, and they... He said, next morning, he said, Dad, can Kevin come with us and play? And I said, well, sure. So we went to the park, and I ran drills with the two boys, and then my son says, Dad, can we play a game? And I said, well, yeah, sure. And I killed him. Uh, But when the game was over, Kevin took my son aside for a conference. And when we started the second game, It wasn't long before I realized that Kevin knew a little bit about basketball. Uh, He knew how to spread the court. He knew I couldn't guard both of them at once. He knew how to pass to the open man. He knew how to work the shot. I want to tell you, when the game was over, it was those boys who had 21 points, and I was on the verge of a heart attack. That's how we win this game. Christianity is a team sport. The problem is that most of our men have nobody to pass the ball to. And the pancake breakfast didn't help. If anything, in the posing that they did to try to impress each other, about their spirituality or their love for God or what a great dad or what a great father they were, they made themselves more intimidating, made each other more intimidating, and less likely that they would ever tell the truth. What I have found in the work that I do now is, you know, I was so reluctant to tell my story. I mean, I didn't want to tell my story. And it shocked me when I started sitting in rooms, 12-step recovery rooms, and hear men just Without shame, with regret, certainly, with appropriate guilt, but without shame. Admit to the, to the most appalling failures. And you know what? It made, me know, it made me trust those guys. And when it came time for me to tell the truth about my own appalling failures, I knew that there, there was a group of people I could tell 
who are not going to excuse my sin for a second. They hate it as much as I do, but they don't hate me. And they're there to help. And I can pass the ball to them. Uh, Tom and I have took some time to uh, travel a little bit this summer because we wanted to visit places where Samson was really taking off and doing well and to find out what, what they were doing right. And, you know, we found out a few things. We found out, for example, that in every city where Samson was really flourishing, where groups were multiplying and lots of guys were getting free, there was always some guy with an administrative gift in the background who was just encouraging and helping to organize and keeping things flowing. He wasn't a dominating leader. And I set Samson up initially. I imagined it to have no leadership at all. I think that was kind of a naive expectation. But these are servant leaders who don't dominate, don't even necessarily lead a meeting. They might not be visible, but that's their gift set. The other thing was very, uh, we noticed that those who uh, followed the meeting format that we suggested and didn't deviate from it, who, who tweaked it to fit their uh, own culture, we, we've, we found some wonderful takes on the Samson meeting. It was, ah, it was entertaining. Uh, but they didn't go too far. The guys who stayed with the structure, those meetings tended to do real well. But here's the other thing I noticed as we traveled, as we went to Jackson, Mississippi, and as we went to uh, Minneapolis, and, uh, was there was a real strong group identity every place we went. It was like being with a championship football team. These guys knew each other, trusted each other, now, interestingly, I heard just a couple days ago a story on NPR. I don't know whether some of you may have heard it. Um, and they referenced the film Restrepo, or the book Restrepo. Anybody read Restrepo or see the film? It's about a, yeah, okay. It's about a platoon of uh, Marines or Army Rangers, I'm not certain which, given the most dangerous assignment on a forward position in Afghanistan during the war on Afghanistan. Uh, I think this may have been on the TED Radio Hour. The presenter made the case that we humans as a species um, are wired to live in groups. It was actually fundamental to our survival that during the hunter-gatherer stage, uh, a lone human couldn't survive very long. Uh, If the group got too big... Uh, you couldn't hunt enough and gather enough to support it. So it was a small, close group. Now, over time, as we learned to domesticate animals and as uh, we developed agriculture, we could support larger communities and now today cities. But um, that wiring is still there. We are, uh, we're, we're made for community. We're wired for community. The Bible tells us that. Uh, it's part of our being made in the image of God. We see it from the very first verse, or from the first chapters of the Bible, early on, where God says, let us make man in our image. So there's a big resurgence these days of an interest in Trinitarian theology, 
What does it mean that God is a communal being, that, that uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in community and have called us, created us, to share in the joy and love of that community. That community lives and thrives and breathes in love. That's what we're made for. We can't experience love alone. And it was out of love that after we had separated ourselves, God came himself to rescue and restore us. Um, So it's only in communal life that we live. the high point, one of, one, of, one of the challenges that returning vets face, um, combat veterans. Of course, you do know right now that the that, uh, combat veteran suicide rate is just astronomical. Anybody heard the latest? It seems to me, is it 20 a day? It's insane. 22 a day? Yeah. Uh, a lot of that has to do with PTSD. And uh, PTSD has a lot in common with addiction. We'll get there in a minute. Uh, But it also has to do with the fact that these men have experienced platoon life in dangerous situations. They They have become so close to other men. They'd lay down their life for them. They're never gonna leave another guy behind. And coming home, they know, or at least they believe, that they're never going to be able to experience that again. It is so fulfilling and so satisfying that its removal is catastrophic. And some of them come to the church thinking maybe they can find it there and they get invited to the freaking pancake breakfast. Um, if you haven't seen it yet, I do recommend the TED Talk done by a guy named uh, Johan Hari called Everything You Think You Know About Addiction is Wrong, uh, in which he says that uh, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. He makes the case that addiction is an attachment issue. It's a fascinating talk. During the course of that talk, he references uh, a now infamous uh, experimental study by a Canadian professor named Bruce K. Alexander. You know, back in the 50s, B.F. Skinner and the Behavioral School of Psychology did a lot of experiments with rats. And if you've studied behavioral th- psychology, you know that there's been this school that says that everything we do, we're conditioned to do, and there's really no such thing as free will, right? And they cite the rat studies. Uh, And the reason they chose rats, by the way, is that rats genetically are quite similar to humans, not as similar as, let's say, chimpanzees. 98% of our genes are shared with a chimpanzee, but 92% of our genes are shared with uh, with a rat. So it's close. Um, and B.F. Skinner did these famous uh, experiments on addiction where he put a rat in a cage and uh, he put a bottle laced with morphine 
of water laced with morphine and, uh, and, a, and a bottle of regular water. And each bottle was activated by a button. If you pushed a button, you could get a drop. And the rat would learn that uh, the water was different. And uh, the rats would quickly become addicted to the morphine. They'd push the button, and they would push the button, and push the button, and push the button. They'd, they'd, without eating, without sleeping, they'd push the button until they died. Uh, he did experiments where he put an electrified grid between the rat and the morphine so that the rat had to endure pain to get the hit. Didn't stop the rat. The conclusion of the experiment was morphine is addictive. Makes sense? <coughs> well, Bruce, had, Bruce Alexander got to wondering about the rat, and he noticed he, about the experiment and about the, the conclusion. And he said, uh, you know, all those experiments were done with rats, single rat in a cage. What if it's different? So he and his students created what they wound up calling a rat park. So a big open box filled with, you can find photographs of it on, 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 on the internet. Uh, you can go to Bruce Alexander's website. Uh, filled with cedar chips and cans for tunnels and wheels and balls and other rats. And, uh, and then put the same two bottles in the rat park. Guess what? Morphine consumption went way down. No rats died. Because, and, and I think the explanation has to do with, with, with the brain. At a recent, uh, just a few weeks ago, we had a, a Samson Society uh, retreat, a national retreat, and our speaker on Friday night was Jeff Schulte of Tin Man Ministries. Uh, I'll tell you what, Jeff Schulte's the man. Get a chance to get that guy. Uh, he's got a message. Uh, Jeff Schulte uh, explained to us that every human being is born with two basic needs. We, well, of course, we have our physical needs. I mean, we, we need food and water. But beyond that, these... We need to matter, and we need to belong. Uh, we belong to our mother for the first nine months of, of life. Birth itself is a little traumatic to be ejected from that warm and safe and close environment where we feel everything she feels. Uh, and an infant will turn toward its mother. Uh, we still have a lot of physical development to do when we're born, of course. We have a lot of brain development to do. Uh, the frontal cortex, is gonna, uh, we don't have the capacity for language when we're born. We don't have the capacity for rational thought or decision-making very much. But the limbic brain is 90% formed. And the limbic brain is where our emotions live. It's uh, the place where long-term memory is formed and stored. The interesting thing about the limbic brain is it has no concept of linear time. 
In the limbic brain, everything happens in the moment. That, by the way, is the explanation for PTSD. How a combat veteran, years after returning home, can be triggered by the backfire of a car or so, and in that moment, he is back in the experience. Uh, as present and real as when, he was, when it was first experienced. That happens in the limbic brain. Um, we have a need to be connected. And we saw how deep that need is when the Iron Curtain fell and we started going into Eastern Europe. It was, it was heartbreaking in Bulgaria, for example. Uh, Bulgaria had vast orphanages. And when UN workers went into these orphanages, they'd see this big, not a cubicle farm, but a crib farm full of children. And the children sat there soundless. Now, an infant doesn't have language, but a healthy infant certainly has needs. And the way we communicate our needs is we cry. Uh, We cry and mother comes to us, father comes to us. We get food, we get comfort, we get warmth, we get... Uh, They get us out of the dirty or wet diaper into a dry and clean one. Our needs are met. And it is communicated to us that we matter and that we belong. Tragically, in our culture, when a boy gets to a certain age, my experience was it was time to start acting like a big boy. Uh... I should no longer have needs. It was no longer appropriate for me to cry. Um, And I was instructed on how to sever the emotional link between my heart and my head, how to live from here up, how to imagine that I don't have needs. And because emotions lead to my needs, I've got to shut my emotions down as well. And, uh, you know, I remember when I got into 12-step recovery, uh, um, <laughs> my sponsor wanted me to start journaling. Uh, and I, my first reaction was I told him, uh, I, I can't do that. He said, uh, what do you mean you can't? I said, I can't. He said, how do you know? I said, I've got probably 15 journals at my house with one page written in them. I know I can't do this. Some people can do it. I can't. He said, well, ah, try it again. So I went to Barnes & Noble, and I bought the most expensive journal they had. It's a big leather-bound thing. And then I bought a, a, a very uh, expensive pen. And the next morning, uh, t- with great ceremony, I sat down to uh, write my memoirs. And I wrote a beautiful couple pages that morning. Took a couple hours. Uh, the next day I wrote a paragraph. Next day I wrote a line, and then it was done. 
So next time we got together, my sponsor said, uh, how'd the journaling go? And I said, just like I told you, I can't do it. He said, what'd you do? So I told him. He said, oh, oh, he said, I get it. He said, you're writing for publication. I said, no, no, I'm not. He said, yeah. I said, no, no, I just, I'm writing carefully. I'm writing well. I don't want to write crap. He said, oh, so you're writing good crap. He said, I want you to try it again, but do it this way. Go down to the Dollar General uh, and get a 99-cent notebook and a Bic pen. Tomorrow morning, find a place where you can be alone. Sit down, put pen to paper, write as fast as you can for 20 minutes. When you're done, tear it out, wad it up, and throw it away. Do it every day. Um, I said, what am I going to write? He said, write what you feel. I said, I don't know what I feel. He said, then write what you think you might feel if you weren't such a freaking nice guy. I want to tell you, I saw the most amazing things come out of my pen. Reminds me a little of some of the awful stuff that David wrote in the Psalms. You know, the Psalms that we don't set to music? (laughs) The imprecatory Psalms? Did you know that more than half of the Psalms are laments? That was the amazing thing about David. David just lived out loud. When he was full of faith, he said so. When he trusted God, he said so. When he thought God had betrayed him, when he thought God had hated him, had abandoned him, he said so. When he was afraid, he said so. And then he said it to music and he gave it to his brothers. And when a guy was having a hard time, David could say, hey, sing this. Might help. You know what I think is the greatest whole right now in contemporary Christian music? We don't have any blues. We don't. They're not allowed. That's wrong. So anyway, I started to write awful things about my father and about the mother who died by suicide when I was nine. And I wrote about my fear and and with every line, I could feel myself coming a little more alive. And here's what I found. As I was able to write it, I was able to own it. As I was able to own it, I was able to share it. I was able to start saying it. And when I was in a room that was safe enough for me to say dangerous things, other men would resonate to what I said, and they would say, me too. And they would start to own it. And they could start to come alive. That doesn't happen at a pancake breakfast. I'm not here to tell, to tell the Samson Society. Samson Society is not the answer to everything. Uh, in fact, uh, if you are thinking of trying to turn your men's ministry into a Samson Society, please stop. Because uh, Samson isn't for everybody. Samson's really the door in. Uh, it's narrow and low. Uh, most guys will not come through the door until they've come to the end of themselves. 
because all of us really want to be able to do this on our own. I believe that God has allowed me to keep my vulnerability to lust to this day because it's the only lever in my life that's big enough to force me out of isolation and into honest relationship with other members of the body of Christ. I didn't join the human race until I ran out of options, until I couldn't be God. But what will happen with increasing frequency as the cultural assault grows is men in your church, young men and older men, are going to be hitting the wall. This porn culture is terrifying. It's power Right, I mean, it's gone mainstream. It's everywhere. And it is taking men away from themselves, from their wives, from their own moral compass. Uh, it's very insidious. It plays on our loneliness. It promises that connection we need. It offers a fleeting, virtual, imaginary connection. It's a hit of morphine that leaves us lonelier than before and more determined to push the button again. There's no solo way out of it. Got to find a rat park. (laughs) Right? So, um, but we all, addicts, we operate on denial. We have a way of minimizing the effect of our actions. I remember several times during my descent into addiction, I would cross a line that I said I would never cross, or I would come this close to being caught, almost lose everything, get a glimpse of the insanity, and I would say, that's it. I'm done. I'd make a fresh resolution. I'd turn over a new leaf. I'd start a new spiritual program, of course, all alone. Um. For a moment, there was a chance that if I had known a safe person, if somebody had been courageous and loving enough to share their weakness with me instead of their strength, to tell me their failure instead of their success, I think I could have gotten off that train earlier. I just never met anybody in church who was that safe. I try to be that guy now. So that when the window opens, and that window is only going to be open for a while, it's terrifying to have that window open, to live with the knowledge that you can't fix it on your own. Eventually, if you don't find help, you're going to find a way through denial to close that window and make another solo effort. If there is a Samson Society or something like it in your church, if you're the guy who's known for leading with weakness, if you're the safe guy, then when the window opens, he's got a place to go. I found that it's very instructive um, and helpful to let the pastor know. Uh, One of the ways that we really grew our Samson Society is uh, I went to our pastor. Uh, uh, Am I supposed to rap? What time do I rap? Ten. Ten, okay. Uh, I've got 10 minutes. Yeah. I think maybe we'll do Q&A. I could keep talking here forever, but I'll just kind of put a stop on it. That's not an elegant end. Uh, Let's just stop there and...
take questions so that I don't answer questions that aren't relevant. Anybody got a question or a comment? When you, when you were aware, and, and you probably were the whole time, that, that there was this, you had to get out of this, right? This is like it's start, you're starting to feel like you have a double life. Yeah. Did you ever think that there was a, a light at the end of the tunnel? I mean, like I know we, you, you talk about that you're going to make this solo effort and you yeah. want to conquer this on your yeah, own. Yeah. Did you, did you, do you know or do you think that you actually felt like there is going to be a day where I'm an open book because I've defeated it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the question is, did I ever think during my years of active addiction that, that there was a light at the end of the tunnel? And then I would, I have to repeat the question, by the way, for the people who listen to the recording. Um, that there'd become a day when I, when I would be free. In the beginning, I had not only that belief, but that conviction. I thought that um, eventually I was going to find the final piece of the puzzle. I was going to figure it out. And, uh, but over the years, you know, my, my grandfather used to say, uh, he, he had a joke where he said, I, I lost my chewing gum in the hen house. Thought I found it three or four times. Uh, if you've been in the hen house, it's funny, right? Uh, so let's just say, um, I thought I found it three or four times. Uh, and every time, that, uh, that that hope that I was going to be able to figure it out turned out to be unfounded. My, uh, my hope died. And I've, I eventually kind of reached the conclusion. I didn't actually state it. I suppose I always imagined conceptually that someday I would figure it out, but practically I just kind of thought, this is as good as it gets. And what I've got to do is just be careful and don't get caught. I don't want to harm the people around me. I'm going to try to contain it. I'm going to try to minimize it as best I can. But then I always lived with the dread of discovery. The great gift, uh, I call myself these days a hope dealer. Because a lot of the guys who I meet, I have the privilege of taking that walk with them after they've hit the wall. And uh, the worst day has come. And I get to tell them that what they think is the worst day of their life can very well be the best day of their life. And, um, and that they were afraid this thing was going to kill them. So now the good news is they, all they need to do is just go ahead and die. Um, just die. Because unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies... It's amazing what God can bring out. Um, so yeah, so I try to give guys hope now, but I, I, lost, I lost hope. It was that it, in the beginning, it, it, and I know I got that message from the enemy. He would suggest to me, I'm convinced the enemy would suggest to me ways to battle the addiction. Just because he knew they wouldn't work. Because they were all solo ways. Have you tried this technique? And then, of course, of course, then when I fail, I mean, he's just all over me with condemnation. Yeah. Oh. To be out from under that condemnation and to know that that condemnation never came from my Heavenly Father. 
I never lost his affection for a moment. I haven't earned his love by defeating the addiction. I'm not loved any more now than I was then. But I've come home and I'm aware again that I'm a son. Yeah. Another question. Yeah. How different is any one uh, repetitive behavior of any standard? Yeah. Not just pornography or anything that uh, people who talk about laying aside the sin that so easily besets us. Yeah. We all probably have besetting sins. It right. seems to be the natural one. Yeah, yeah. It just gets us every yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I do believe that the principles of addiction um, are the same across the board. There are some certainly some differences in the mechanisms of how those addictions work, but, uh, which is why it's always best to have as a guide and a companion or to find companions who've battled the same exact thing as you. But the, the way that uh, AA has morphed into 200 different programs across every imaginable destructive uh, behavior to me is pretty much proof that fundamentally it's the same. And the other thing that tells me it's the same is that I am adept at switching addictions. So uh, I am not, I would, I have been delivered from the obsession to lust. I, I'm hes- I hesitate to say I'm not an addict. I do know that um, I've lost all breaks around lust and I can't go there. I have to have boundaries if I'm going to maintain my freedom. I'm not free to do some things that I considered myself free to do before. Um, but, you know, it's, it is kind of interesting to watch a guy, like early on in sex addiction, it's not unusual for a guy to gain 15 pounds. Because uh, he'll, he'll just, if he can't, you know, he'll eat at it for a while. And uh, learning to identify those and... Uh, Find, and, and the key is, finding a way to meet these fundamental needs that God designed for us, this need to matter and this need to belong, to be connected. That's what takes the urge to medicate away. Jeff Schulte has a beautiful way of, of explaining uh, porn and sex addiction. He, said God create, he says, God created us for this kind of connection with each other but this will do. And if this is all we can get, this is what we'll take. And we can connect this way. We won't say no, as Jeff says, until we have a better yes. That's also the message of uh, Michael Cusick. His book, Surfing for God, is one I recommend. And he opens, at that, uh, he opens with the quote uh, that uh, the man who knocks on the door of the brothel is looking for God, G.K. Chesterton. So uh, I'm all about positive sobriety, not just negative sobriety. This just isn't stopping behavior. This is meeting our deepest needs. And those needs are met in community. And that's why fake community is counterproductive. I'm not saying never have a pancake breakfast. But if that's your men's ministry, something's wrong. Thanks, brothers. Okay. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. Make sure to download your copy of the free ebook associated with this track by Nate Larkin. 
It's called Beyond Accountability. You can get it at discipleship.org accountability. You'll find dozens of other great resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.